in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Um, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing our sermon series today, Conversations with Jesus. Today we're looking at the wedding at Cana. But really I want to suggest that these are more than mere conversations. They are encounters with Jesus that show us two key things. Firstly, John recounts how different people encountered Jesus and discovered that there was more to this man than just a good teacher or prophet. They saw signs that he was in fact the Messiah, the Son of God, the one whom Israel as a nation had been promised would be sent from God to save his people from their sins. And the second thing we see in these stories is how these people responded to Jesus. So they saw a sign that told them more about who he was, and we see how they responded. And that really is the key for us. How do we respond to Jesus? We saw this pattern last week, and if you were here, you would have heard Colin relating the story of Nathaniel's encounter with Jesus in chapter 1. Firstly, Nathaniel was given a sign that swept away all his doubts about whether or not Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Jesus said to him, I saw you under the fig tree when Philip called you, but Jesus wasn't even there when that happened. And secondly, we see Nathaniel's response. In verse 49 of chapter 1, We read, he said, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Nathanael was left in no doubt as to who Jesus was. In today's story, we read about another encounter, this time at a wedding. There's a slightly awkward conversation, a sign, and we read about the response of his disciples. Verse 11 of chapter 2, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And like I said, that's the key for us. We too need to have an encounter with Jesus where we see the signs that reveal his glory, that he is in fact the son of God, sent from God to us, and we can have a conversation with Jesus and we too can decide to believe in him, to put our faith in him and to follow him just as his disciples did. Now weddings. Usually, exciting. it's exciting to be invited to a wedding celebration. 
Although I acknowledge being at a wedding can be hard, particularly if you've been divorced or never had the opportunity to marry. And if you're married, hopefully you remember the occasion of your wedding with joy. My own wedding I remember as a joyful day. There we are. Bit of a smile. (laughs) Usually an occasion for joy and celebration, catching up with family and friends and so on. And of course, the longer you live over the course of your lives, you go through seasons where it seems like you're part of lots of weddings. When I was younger, a lot of my friends and family reached the age where they were getting married, and so for a few years, we enjoyed wedding season, as I like to call it. It can be a fantastic time of life, and along the way, you always end up with a few interesting, funny, or embarrassing stories at these weddings. There's something about weddings that just seems to bring out the very best, and perhaps the very worst in people. They highlight family divisions and character flaws and could be occasions of great drama leading up to today. So much so that you can find yourself stressing about what could go wrong and feeling relieved when it's all over. And of course, it doesn't always go to plan, like these guys. Whatever you do, don't touch the dress, and for heaven's sake, don't drop the cake. I myself have had a few embarrassing moments at weddings over the years. At my own reception, I absent-mindedly asked a good mate's wife when she was due. Problem was, she'd already had the baby a few weeks before. I had, in my busyness, simply forgotten. The look of horror on her face told me immediately that I had put my foot in it. It was the look that said, can't you see I'm not pregnant anymore? Anyway, of course, the, uh, the funniest and most awkward wedding moments seem to relate to wedding speeches. Usually everyone can, can recall the best and the worst ones they've heard, and you really don't want to be embarrassed at a wedding, especially your own. Now, in your leaflets, uh, there is a blank outline for today. Up on the screen now, you'll see an outline that I've put together. This was printed a week before I got back from a holiday and Colin was still here. He's away now, so if you want to fill in the outline, if you're in the habit of taking notes, it'll be up there for a minute or two longer. And I want to just set the scene a little bit for today's story. Jesus is at a wedding and a situation develops which could lead to major embarrassment for the bridegroom and their family. They run out of wine, but in fact it was more than that. You see, in those days, a Jewish wedding would last for seven days and the guests would bring gifts and in return, the groom's family had an obligation to wine and dine their guests for the full seven days. It'd be an expensive wedding, wouldn't it? If they failed to provide for the guests at the wedding, they could be forced to pay a fine of up to half the value of the gifts that they had received back to their guests. So it really was a big deal to run out of wine, more than just embarrassment. And this situation leads to our first heading today, a motherly talk. There's a rather interesting conversation that takes place between Jesus and his mother. In chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, we read, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, for us, reading this probably raises a couple of questions. 
How did Mary know about the problem before others? And why did she get involved? And why did she tell her son Jesus? What did she think Jesus was going to do? Jesus' reply is also interesting. Perhaps to us in the 21st century, it can even seem a little bit rude or perhaps a bit disrespectful. Woman, why do you involve me? However, in that time, calling his mother woman was actually a term of respect. And we see another example of that at the crucifixion. In John chapter 20, verses 26 to 27, we read, When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So it was a term of respect and endearment. And of course, we don't get the tone or the sense in which it was conveyed. We, we need to just, in a sense, read that in. And then we have Jesus' somewhat cryptic reply, My hour has not yet come. Now I wonder if you'll just indulge me for just a moment. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and you don't have to, but if you, if you will, i ask you to close your eyes and just imagine for a moment that you're at a wedding reception. Maybe you're wearing your best suit or your best dress. There's beautiful music playing in the background, laughter and joyful conversations. And then across the room, you notice a hushed conversation taking place at one of the tables. One of the guests appears to be having a slightly awkward conversation with his mother. What is going on, you think to yourself? The mother looks worried as she leans over and whispers to her son. The son looks confused as he responds and the hospitality staff are standing slightly behind and off to the side, looking helpless. Then the mother points to the staff and gives them some instructions before walking off. They look at the son, waiting, worried, uncertain. Finally, the son stands up and points to some large jars at the back of the room. He appears to be giving instructions to the staff who hurry off. Then a few minutes go by, and you notice a staff member hurrying back with a large glass of wine which she takes to the father of the bride. The staff, the mother, the son all exchange glances as the host drinks. Then the father of the bride calls out to his new son-in-law. Gesturing, he waves the groom to come over. Tense few seconds go by, and then the father-in-law shakes his son-in-law's hand and slaps him on the back. Well done, son, he says, pumping his hand. Phew! The servants, the mother let out a sigh of relief. The mother looks at her son, who simply nods in acknowledgement to his mother. And the party goes on as if nothing had happened. You can open your eyes now. (laughs) So what's happening here with this conversation between Jesus and his mother? Well, firstly, Jesus' mother appears to have some inside knowledge of what is going on with the catering. Was she somehow involved with the wedding feast? Was she perhaps family? Perhaps she was even involved in preparing things. It's not as if they had catering companies back then. The family would do it. We don't really know, but in any case, she knew before others that the wine had run out. And more than that, she was concerned enough to want to try and fix the situation. She was likely out of options to save the family from this embarrassment, and so in desperation she turns to her son Jesus and makes this simple statement. They have no more wine. How did she say it? Was it a stern kind of, they have no more wine? 
Or was it a worried? They have no more wine. Or perhaps it was just information. Guess what? There's no more wine. Which begs the question, why would, Jesus, why would Mary tell Jesus? What could she possibly have been hoping he would do? After all, Jesus had not performed any miracles up to this time, and it wasn't as if he could just go out, hitch up his donkey and trot on down to the local thirsty camel and load up some wine before anyone noticed. Well, it seems that Jesus knew what his mother was implying. You can just imagine the scene, right? Your own mother comes to you and says, there's a problem. Without her even saying, without her even saying it, you know that the expectation is for you to do something to help. Jesus' response is perhaps typical of children's response to their mother's expectations. Why do you involve me, he says. But then he gives this cryptic response, my hour has not yet come. Jesus' mother, Jesus' mother Mary's response is also telling. She has conveyed her expectations and when he questions her, she just turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Now Jesus is left in no doubt. His mother has told him what the problem is and she's made it clear she expects him to do something about it. And I find it interesting that the servants would obey Mary's instructions to do whatever Jesus told them. It would seem that Mary had some sort of role because her word to the servants conveyed some authority. And it was no easy thing that Jesus asked the servants to do. Verse 6 of chapter 2 Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. There's a picture of some ceremonial jars up on the screen there, so you can get an idea of just how big they were, and you look at the table in the picture there. Each could hold approximately 75 to 115 litres of water. And it's not as if the servants could duck out the back and turn the tap on. They had to go out to the well to fetch the water. Which leads me to my second heading today, a discreet response. I imagine there was something of an awkward pause at this point as the servants looked to Jesus for instructions. Jesus is probably thinking, well, I better do something, but how can I avoid upstaging the bride and groom? You can just imagine if someone did, <laughs> someone did a miracle at a wedding, it's going to attract some almighty attention, perhaps completely disrupting the reception. He doesn't want to be like this couple, upstaging the bride and groom. Well, Jesus expertly finds a way to discreetly do a miracle. Unlike many of his other miracles, this one is behind the scenes, and it's only known by a few. Even the master of the banquet did not know where the wine had come from and mistakenly thanks the bridegroom. Verses 9 and 10. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till last. So the servants knew, Jesus knew, sorry, Jesus' mother knew, and verse 11 tells us that his disciples knew, but at that time no one else knew what had happened. So what does all this mean? We've got this strange phrase, his hour. I think there's a few interesting little things that are worth digging into. In verse 4, Jesus said, My hour has not yet come. 
This phrase shows us that Jesus was operating on God's timetable, not on Mary's or even his timetable. He had come to do God the he had come from God the Father to do his Father's work, and he had work yet to be completed before his hour would come. The time had not yet come for Jesus to fully reveal his glory, his true identity to the wider public, because to to do so would would lead to his death. In another uh, a number of other places in John's Gospel, John uses the phrase "His hour had not yet come." when describing how Jesus' enemies were prevented from seizing him. Then, when John turns to the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, we see Jesus referring to his impending death as the coming of his hour. John chapter 13, verse 1 says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. What about the water to wine? Like so many things in the Bible, there are little details recorded that at first glance can seem insignificant. But dig a little deeper and there's often a deeper meaning that shows how God plans things right down to the little details and nothing happens by accident. This was Jesus' first miracle or sign as John calls them and it's quite symbolic that the miracle is changing water in Jewish ceremonial jars into wine. Jars that were used for outward ceremonial washing a ritual belonging to the Jewish law, instead become vessels for wine. And of course, wine is a symbol for Christ's blood. Because of Jesus, we have swapped the old covenant of the law for the new covenant of his grace by his shed blood. And of course, we remember this when we share in the Lord's, Lord's table, the Lord's supper, as he told us to in Matthew chapter 26, verse 27 and 28. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there was also another time in the Bible where water was miraculously changed. The first of the plagues sent by God through his servant Moses was also changing water, but in that instance it was changing water to blood in the land of Egypt. Moses came to free God's people from slavery in Egypt but Jesus came to free people from slavery to sin. What about the servants? This miracle was made possible because of the obedience of the servants who filled up the large jars with water. They did something that was difficult and time-consuming, lugging all that water, something that would have perhaps seemed rather pointless at the time, and then they took it to the master of the banquet. And we're not told at what point Jesus changed the water to wine. So did they know when they were taking it to the master that it was actually wine they were serving to the master? We don't know, but the point is they obeyed. And then the miracle happened. Jesus could have just miraculously filled the jars with wine from the get-go. He actually didn't need the servants. But involving them, he was showing them something of his glory. And I think there's a little lesson for us there. Sometimes we might feel a prompting from the Lord to do something for someone that might seem insignificant or we might wonder why. And it's only after we obey that the reason becomes clearer. And then we have the the point about the wine, best wine for last, the best is yet to come. Jesus' wine is not cheap new wine, it's premium aged wine. Verse 10 says, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. 
but you have saved the best till now. So it is with the life that Jesus offers us. Not only is it better than the cheap thrills the world has to offer us, but the best is yet to come. And we're all waiting for that, right? Whatever we face here will be forgotten when we experience the joy of life in God's future kingdom when Christ returns. The first sign. Verse 11, John refers to this as the first sign that Jesus did. It's interesting that John uses the word sign instead of miracles, unlike the other Gospels. Uh, We read it in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. John uses the word signs instead of miracles because he's painting a bigger picture. In his first 12 chapters, he describes seven signs or miracles that Jesus performed. And these signs are a great way to point to something important. In fact, all signs are. Reveal deeper meanings, perhaps, or to show people the way. And that's what this sign is, and each of the seven signs. Of course, signs like these ones up on the screen can be very ordinary, like a stop sign. They can be funny, memorable even, perhaps even quite amazing. Uh, Most of you probably remember the year 2000 Sydney Harbour Bridge Eternity sign. Quite a memorable sign if you were around back then. And the sign in this story was also quite memorable and amazing. This sign reveals to Jesus' disciples that Jesus is more important than any other teacher or prophet they've ever met. The sign also shows that there is greater meaning to this miracle at the wedding. It wasn't just a miracle done to please his mother or to save some friends from embarrassment at their wedding. The miracle was a special sign showing discreetly to just a few. And verse 11 tells us it revealed Jesus' glory. His glory as the one whom the prophets of old had predicted, whom the angel had foretold, would be sent from God to save his people from their sins. So how do we respond to Jesus? Well, the answer is found at the end of verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. They saw the sign pointing to the real Jesus, and they responded by believing in him. These men thought they were just going to a wedding. But while they were there, they had this amazing encounter with the real Jesus. To others, he was just another guest at the wedding. But to his mother, to the servants, and to his disciples, he revealed his glory as the Son of God, sent from God to save his people from their sins. Do we see the signs surrounding Jesus' incredible life, the miracles he did, and of course his resurrection? Do we believe in him just as his disciples did? I believe the testimony of John and his disciples is true, but I don't just want to believe it in my head. These disciples saw something that changed their lives. They didn't just believe in the miracles, they believed in the one who performed it and they followed him for the rest of their lives. So how real is Jesus to us? Is he life-changing to us? Let's make sure that we don't forget just how unique, amazing and life-changing encountering Jesus really is. Let's keep on reminding ourselves by meeting together like we are today, by reading and studying the scriptures, by encouraging each other in living out our whole lives as followers of Jesus and by having conversations with Jesus through prayer concerning our lives because it's in the ordinariness of life, like a wedding, that Jesus reveals who he really is.
So let's keep on getting to know the real Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story recorded in the Gospel of John and what we can learn from it today. Thank you that you sent your son to save us from our sin. And as you have revealed yourself to us, help us to respond to you, Lord Jesus, by believing in you and following you, just as your disciples did. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.